0: I put a rock into a chamber, shot it with x-rays, took it out, put another rock in, did that about a thousand times. Do you get to manually shoot
1: with the x-rays? Do you have like an x-ray gun that you have? Nah, no. We lived in the US, we went to Europe, it was fantastic, and the deal was, you come live with me, like, I'll pay for everything, but the one thing you have to do for me is implement the blueprint protocol. I really liked it when I saw this one, because it's it's so obvious once you see it, and yet it's taken all of humanity's <laughs> time till now to realize that maybe casts don't have to cover your entire arm.
0: Hey guys, welcome to the first ever or second ever episode, the live technocracy. But the first episode, we didn't have a camera and we didn't have a really nice studio setup. Which, you know, I paid for. I built this myself, actually. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) I think it's really nice, except for, like, the dodgy makeshift curtain in the background. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we're actually at Hive Studios in Singapore. So I flew up. We're meant to record a bunch of episodes, but unfortunately got sick. So we're trying to make up for it this week with maybe, what, three episodes this week? We'll see how we go. Whatever we can get done. Yeah. Yeah. Anything interesting you want to share with everyone before we kick off this episode? Actually, yeah, why not? I mean,
1: we were talking about this just before, but doing all this audio work reminded me of a a friend of mine who recently actually didn't finish his PhD, decided that it was not worth it given all the other things going on in his life. But he was focused on looking at how you can measure the strength of a weld, because one of the challenges with welding is that it's kind of like packing a parachute. You can only tell how good the weld is by tearing the weld apart and seeing how much force it took to do that. And then you've got a broken weld and that's not much good to you. So he was looking at recording, like super high fidelity, the sound that a world makes and then tearing them apart and then doing it thousands of times and then seeing if he could build a machine learning algorithm that could pick out like the perfect sound of the perfect world.
0: Doing it thousands of times sounds really, really painstaking.
1: I think people underestimate how much of like really good science is just boring, repetitive work.
0: Yeah. When I worked as a lab assistant, which was what, for like six months, I put a rock into a chamber, shot it with x-rays, took it out, put another rock in, did that about a thousand times. Do you get to manually shoot with x-rays? Do you have like an x-ray gun? that No, no. <laughs> it was like this little machine. It's like a microwave. It sounds cooler than it is. It's just a microwave. <laughs> it sounds pretty fucking cool. Um, I wanted to share something I've been working on within the entry-level team. So mm. I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, German war tactics. Is that something that you come across? Yeah.
1: Um, legally speaking, I am uh, very unfamiliar with uh, German war tactics.
0: Okay. So I'm very familiar with German. (laughs) Um, In particular, this this one developed by Prussians, but then developed by the Germans called, I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize, Aufstrags Tactic, which is called the Commander's Intent. Okay. So essentially, war was way too unpredictable for you to be like, all right, this is the tactic, we're going to do this, and this is how you should do it. By the time you, like land on Gallipoli or, like, you know, just, like, start the war, everything goes to shit. Like, mm-hmm. no one can follow orders. Like, they don't know what they're meant to be doing. Maybe you get put in a, I don't actually know what the military groupings are, but, like, you end up with a group that you're not familiar with, you have a different commander. And so they wrote these documents called the Commander's Intent or Alstrug's Tactic, right? And so it is all about the why and the purpose of why why they're trying to achieve what they're trying to achieve.
1: So you tell me that you're going to be running entry level like a, a German battalion. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So, I wrote this long document, which is like why and like the purpose of what we're doing. And it was like, it talked about the fact that like in some countries, unemployment rates are lower than poverty rates. It talks about the fact that, you know, the cost of reskilling people, the AI tailwinds. Um, and it talks about the end state, which is like, what does this thing look like? It's kind of, it looks like a sci fi story the way, way I wrote it, which was just like talking about uh, what education looks like in the future and then key objectives I think we need to do to make it all happen. And I just share that document. And the whole point of it is to make your team a little bit more decentralized in terms of command structure. People always know what and how they should be doing things based on the why.
1: That's the tactic, basically. That's pretty interesting. Do you think there's something in the new year that inspired you to do this? Because I did something similar. I didn't do the pre-study on uh, World War One and World yeah, War Two, yeah. But we had this, you know, like company-wide all hands. It was like a 90-minute, I guess, presentation, back-and-forth Q&A around essentially this, like what is the purpose, what is the why, what is the vague understanding of the how and sort of the macro environment, why you know like why are we positioned to win, what do we have to achieve to win, what do I expect of people, autonomy was one of these key things and autonomy goes both ways, it's all well and good to ask for autonomy from your staff but you have to give them enough of the why and the how that they can actually be autonomous without constantly having to second guess whether they're even headed in the right direction.
0: Yeah, exactly. This and this is where things like mission and vision and things like mm. that come from, right? I just liked having this like weird flavoring at the start of it, just to <laughs> you know, when when I start the the meeting with, all right, guys, I was reading about German war tactics and this is what they did and this is how like, you know, battles are won and then like, you know, suddenly it just makes it a little bit more fun and exciting for the team. Horowitz talks about this as well. He,
1: he talks about this idea of weird rules. And there's something about the weirdness of of something that can kind of shock people into paying attention and remembering it but it also forces them to ask questions and when people ask questions they get an answer so if you have like this weird concept in your company then new people who are trying to assimilate with the culture will say why do we have this weird german wartime document and it was like oh it's for mission alignment because you need to be autonomous and needs to be ground up development it's like boom instant like they're guaranteed to ask that question and they're guaranteed to get a good answer which tells them about what it's like to work at the company
0: yeah, that, that's a great point. I didn't think about that when I was putting this together. I just thought it was fun. But that makes so much sense now that you, like, explain why it makes sense, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so for this episode, we're going to be talking about ideas again. So I don't think we're going to do a deep tech in this cell. Like, I have a bunch of stuff. I maybe have five or six things I want to discuss. Well, this is years like years. deep tech speed dating then. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, we, we can put a gamified thing into it. Do you have anything you want to talk about? I just have one.
1: Okay. Yeah and cuz in preparing for this i came across this idea a little while ago and i wanted to dive deeper into it and then i just got it just
0: was went so much deeper than i thought and i ended up spending my whole allocated research time reading about it okay this. that's <laughs> actually a lot better so we could probably spend a lot of time on that let me start with a really easy one it is called cast 21 have you heard of this before no so it's
1: pretty simple oh i've seen
0: this yeah it's yes. it's cool right it's like not super complex but It is a cast that you fill with resin. So basically, you slide on this little plastic thing and then you fill it with resin. It hardens in a couple of minutes and you're done. It's waterproof. You can itch through it, obviously. And there's a bunch of interesting things there. Technically, not super difficult, but I just think it's a really cool innovation. I really liked it when I saw this one because it's it's so obvious once you see it.
1: And yet it's taken all of humanity's <laughs> time till now to realize that maybe casts don't have to cover your entire arm.
0: Yeah, and casts um, are so disgusting and like uncomfortable. And have you ever worn one? No, but I've seen other people wear it and like how disgusting they get after like six weeks. And I've also seen videos of them cutting open the cast, which looks disgusting.
1: So this actually reminds me of, I guess, the broader concept here that you see increasingly in a lot of mechanical engineering, which is, for example, you look at like a, a, a wall or like a piece of material in a certain context, especially construction. And if you can get good enough measurements of it, you can have a look at where the stresses actually are in this material, in the context that you're using it. And then to save on costs and to make things lighter weight, they will just remove material from those low, I guess, pressure areas. And then you end up with essentially like walls that look kind of like this, but they've got these mm. super funky curvy shapes And collectively, that shape provides all the same sort of strength that it needs to, but with significantly less material, and it's significantly lighter.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And this is why we have things like honeycomb materials, Mm. and we have... I mean, we spent a whole semester in mechanical engineering learning trusses. Trusses. Like, you know, you get a square and put a beam diagonally. Yeah. (laughs) It's a truss, and... We spend a whole semester on it because trusses are such a beautiful and like powerful shape to use for mechanical engineering and and civil engineering. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know that the
1: brackets on your keyboard come from an architectural brace, which actually comes from pants?
0: Wait, what?
1: That's my fun etymological fact for
0: you. You mean like you mean yeah. these things?
1: Yeah. No, no, no. As in like the parentheses, the brackets on oh. your keyboard actually derive from the word for pants, and it's also the same word for like buttresses and braces in architectural...
0: The word parentheses?
1: No, just the shape.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And the reason that they're called brackets. There you go.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, Every episode, we're just going to get a weird, (laughs) fun fact.
1: I love etymology. There's this book called The Etymologicon, and the first paragraph or page or two is just about how he had to write this book because his friends were sick of listening to his fun etymological (laughs) facts. And I can... This is a lived experience. <laughs> I mean, this is
0: great. We get a short every uh, every episode and we could put it on TikTok. All right, cool. So cast 21, not too much to talk about here. I think it's a cool idea. Yeah, I'm looking forward to breaking your wrist now. We'll see what happens. What, what color are you going to pick? Red. It goes faster. Okay. Heels faster? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, or just my punches be cool. will be
1: faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, cool. I can move on to the next one. So the next one is, how, how much do you know about 3D printed food? Nothing. Okay, so this is a 3D printed cake. There is uh, seven ingredients that are used. And most of this, I think 70% of it is graham cracker paste. Like that. That's Nutella there. I don't know what that is. And yeah, th- this whole thing is graham cracker paste. And then they use a, I didn't even know this is a term. They call it laser broiling, which I'm sure they just made up now because you're Broiling something with laser, I'm sure, is only used in this context. And that's meant to be, yeah, that's meant to be the cream. Why? I don't know. Eventually, like, you read in all the sci-fi books, you have the, you just press a button and it pops out the cake that you want or the, the food that you want. Yeah, I, I, I can see this maybe in, like, the ISS <laughs> <laughs> or, like, super practical
1: environments. What What's the claimed problem that this is solving, Or
0: is it just someone, is it at that stage where people are just doing it because they can?
1: Are there companies around this
0: or? So this was done in a university. I will put in the show notes, whichever university it was from because I don't want to misquote it right now. But there's a longer YouTube video from the university itself. Well, I think one of the the postdocs. And you can see all the failed experiments they went through. So you can see it here. Show you real quick. So I'm not sure if that's going to come up on camera.
1: I'm upset that they made the wrong kind of cheesecake, but that aside. <laughs> I, w- I mean, I would eat one of these. Why not? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for the gimmick.
0: Yeah, but... it's it's meant to be, yeah, it's graham cracker though, mostly. Don't know if that's a cheesecake, but I'm guessing graham cracker paste has a little bit more structural integrity than just <laughs> a cake.
1: Are they solely focused on cakes or are they going to 3D print me a rib eye?
0: Well, I mean, maybe. I mean, there's the, oh, we could do a whole episode of like lab grown meats. Yeah, there are heaps sure. of them out there. There is also three uh, D printed. I don't know if they call it three D printing. So, Kana Drinks. Do you know about them? No. So these guys went out of business last year, but the concept is still really cool. Oh, I do. No, I have heard of these guys. So they are printing drinks. Yeah. So this is the machine. They wanted more of a e commerce style store where you basically click on a drink. It has a bunch of cartridges in the back. And it would just print the drink that you want. And then individual creators can come in and be like, hey, we're going to launch AJ's Orange Juice and you can download it here. And it just has my preference for what I would do. And then maybe get like what, one cent a drink or something like that. Has anyone
1: done a post-mortem on why they went out of business?
0: So the official reason is they didn't get enough funding, which I don't think seems, that doesn't sound right. There's
1: always a reason why, right? Like that's that's not the lowest level reason. Yeah. Okay.
0: The text sounded interesting. So I think, the main thing was that, you know, most of the beverages are just water. So I think, five, yeah, 5% of your drinks drive the taste and aroma. And I think they broke down taste and aroma to a handful of different ingredients. So it's just like, it's a ratio between these. I want to say it's like between 20 and 30 different ingredients, maybe less actually. And then you just have cartridges of each one of those and you just put them in different quantities to create a different drink. Essentially. Okay.
1: So it's super like depending on how you want to think about it, super basic, meaning like fundamental or Mm. just super simple, just drink mixing.
0: Yeah. But supposedly that includes anything from tequila to coffee to lemonade. Yeah, I mean, they've got to have an alcohol cartridge, right? Yeah, but (laughs) it's wild to me that apparently there's so much um, overlap between those three drinks that you could make all three of them from the same uh, machine. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, what are your thoughts on printed drinks and foods are you bullish about the idea? I, I love it, but I think I, I've i always been surprised at the amount of
1: cultural overhead there seems to be in trying to get people to adopt these things. I, I think it was a Netflix like explained episode that I, I watched on this, and they had this like very basic experiment with kids where they gave them real meat versus synthetic meat, and the kids overwhelmingly preferred the taste of the synthetic meat, because ultimately it was just pure and higher quality. But then the moment that you told them one was real and one was like fake, they all preferred the real one. So there's something deep in our psychology that does apparently doesn't like synthetic food, which I don't understand, but I think that's just because I'm predisposed to be a tech nerd. So I kind of like it. Like I have a bias, but kind of in the other direction.
0: I mean, I think there's a lot more psychology in taste than there is actual taste, right? Like if you think about wine, mm. I don't want to start a war here, but like, <laughs> you know, like I think a lot of it is psychology, right?
1: Yeah. That there's definitely a difference between a good one and a bad one. Correct. But,
0: but I also think there is like a lot of psychology that happens in the upper range. Mm-hmm. Like I I can't honestly tell the difference between like adding zeros once you get up to that point. They'll taste the same to me. Yeah. I mean I think everyone has that experience of like
1: enjoying something and then you find out that it has your least favorite food in it and suddenly it genuinely doesn't taste good anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Like when someone sells me the shrimp paste in something and suddenly I'm like, Oh, you know what? Now
0: that I've had an entire bowl of it, I feel a little queasy. And that's probably the shrimp paste, to be honest. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel the exact same way with tahini for some reason. I had a bad experience with tahini and then I had a really good dish and I was like complimenting the chef and I was like, this is amazing. My friend who cooked it. And then I got home and then she gave me the recipe and I had tahini and I was like, oh, yeah, probably not again, eh? Like.
1: And I, I think this is going to be, like, the company that absolutely nails synthetic food, it's not going to be in the tech. There will be a tech component yeah. because you have to, it has to taste good and look good and whatever. But it'll be a psycholo- psychological component and being able to brand it well, market it well. The differentiation is going to be on the social side and how you market it.
0: But what are your thoughts on, uh, like, I, can't, I can see how this food printer works, right? It's pretty straightforward. You just mm. get a bunch of paste and then you can kind of, like, shoot some lasers as a cook a little bit i'm guessing you can't do like full-on raw ingredients at this point like mm. gram cracker paste i'm guessing is edible when it's raw the cooking is just hardened a little bit i'm guessing i'm not sure exactly how they go from here to full-on 3d printed like a pizza or no more complex than that like a burger or something like that sure i mean i still kind
1: of question the purpose of it i like synthetic foods because you're actually changing the supply chain fundamentally but 3D printing food does like does that change the supply chain? It's yeah. still using natural ingredients you're just putting into squeegee bags and you know, squeezing out the other end in a way that is maybe more efficient than a human doing it. But to me, the human component of food, as we were just discussing, that's also part of it, right? Like going out to a chef's table restaurant where you can see the chefs making it, like that's all part of it. There's a culture to food and this does sort of like move food entirely into nerd culture. Which is worth it if you're getting something from it, like as a society, but I don't think you really get anything from just basic 3D printing a cheesecake, but it's all the same ingredients that a cheesecake has from the same sources, but just prepared differently. I don't know. I don't see the value add. It's cool. It's a fun piece of tech. I'm kind of glad it's not a company yet.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 The drinks thing I think is more interesting. I think that's easier to get adoption for than the food one. That one I would agree with you on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Something about drinking feels a little less intimate than yeah. food. <laughs> yeah, You are what you eat, but you're not what you drink.
0: All right. So we've done casts and then we've done 3D printed foods and drinks. Have you heard about the rabbit AI? I have heard about it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Have you like seen it in, in detail? I've not seen it in person. Well, yeah. What are, what are your first thoughts on it? I love it.
1: Like aesthetically. I like it. I'm amazed that there seems to be a a large population of people that also like the aesthetic of it. It's retro. It's old school. I don't know how useful it's actually going to be in practice yet. I actually personally don't think that LLMs and sort of these very rudimentary AGI type things that we have are actually super useful yet. I think they're going to be. But I do like that there are companies that are taking a fundamentally new angle on products and actually trying for the first time in... 20 years. I mean, actually, maybe that's not fair. There have been things like Google Glass and Meta Ray-Bans, but just a new class of consumer tech, like fundamentally new class, not just like my iPhone, but better, but actually a new type of device. Mm. I like the bravery. It's hard to get right.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, you had you had a really nice way of putting it. I, I came out with like, this is what is the point sort of thing. And I came <laughs> with a very like negative attitude towards it because I watched the demo video and some of the use cases were interesting. Like he booked an Uber. He ordered food he you know did some stuff and it, it did save him a little bit of steps for example there's one use case where he wanted to order a pizza and he just said just order the one i usually get or something like that and it already knew which mm. one to order so that was interesting but i still don't fully understand why this couldn't just be an app on a phone yep. versus it needed its own device and i also didn't fully understand this like did they call it octo camera or something like that and then the scroll wheel like didn't fully understand the, the user interface that much. I think the user interface is just them trying to do something different. Mm. I can kind of understand the fun,
1: like having fundamentally different hardware. I don't actually know what they've got in this. I heard a breakdown that someone thought it was just basically a wrapper around a Raspberry Pi. But long term, you do need specialized chips. If you want these large language models, which are insanely heavy things, to run on a consumer grade device that size, you will eventually need custom chips like ASIC chips that basically do nothing but run that generation of LLM. And you can't pack that into a phone. Uh, Well, you you may be able to pack that into a phone, but you can't pack that into a phone today because the phone's already made. Mm. Um, So there's a bit of like control your own destiny type thing here. If you really come up with a new model and you want an ASIC rig, you can't just install that chip into an iPhone, but you can roll your own hardware. I don't think that's what they're doing yet, but in theory...
0: I think the hardware is meant to be optimized for running a really lightweight LLM. Oh, see, right. How do you not love that wheel? That's like... But I don't get what you do with it.
1: It's like an iPod thing. It's like the crown on an uh, Apple Watch. Mm. You scroll
0: around, you navigate. Yeah, but they're trying to abstract away the screen, which I have mixed feelings about. I know everyone's trying to reduce screen time, and that's been like a big movement for a while, but screen time's also nice.
1: What do you think, what do you think about, like audio as a medium for, for controlling a device?
0: So I use audio more than I use screen. Really? Because I told you I talked to Trevor mm. in the mornings, which is nice. Trevor is my AI GPT forefront. And then I listen to podcasts. as like one of the main mediums and audio books and things like that. So I like audio as a format. With that said, screen is also quite useful. Do you find, I, I mean more as in
1: like controlling the device. Like if you have this little pocket, I mean, there's these other competitors to rabbit too, like these little pocket shaped things Mm -hmm. that you pin onto yourself. It's all audio, right? Um, How do you feel about sort of like walking around in public and talking where everyone can hear you, whereas a screen is much more intimate?
0: So I only do that if I'm in the car. I use it frequently in the car to take Mm. notes and things like that. So if I'm listening to something and there's a really cool note, I'll like ask Siri to make a note for me. I'll do voice recordings. I'll ask it to send messages. Siri's not too bad at like sending messages on WhatsApp and things like that to certain people. So I, I use it for that. In terms of public, probably not. I definitely switch the screen when I'm in public, so it depends. Which is weird because, I mean, I don't use
1: audio much at, at all as a medium. I mean, I, I receive audio a lot, but I don't use it to control things. In public, I, I definitely don't like doing it, which is weird because I'm more than happy to talk about my private life to a friend who's sitting right next to me. So I think if you can figure out how to get the UX, such that talking to this thing mm-hmm. on your shoulder feels like talking to your chocolate bear best friend mm. right next to you on on the train. Yeah. Then maybe it's doable. Yeah. When's the last time you caught a train? I caught a train earlier this year. Yep.
0: Fair enough. How but... dare
1: you, AJ? <laughs> well, the reason I caught the train was I, I I drove in from Sasfe, snowboarding in the mountains of Switzerland, and we came into Zurich, and then I had to go from the airport like into Zurich Central because mm-hmm. I had seven hours there. And then I caught the train back and it was a disaster. Everything was in German and French and I had no, like I have never been to the, like the Swiss train network and it was not, it was not easy to understand. And then I went up to two people to try and ask for help. And by the third person, I was like, okay, I've just got to YOLO this. And I got on the wrong train and ended up in the city center, which is not actually where I wanted to be. I wanted to be at ETH.
0: (laughs) That's fair. Well, I, that was partially dig, but also I was just curious because from a behavior perspective, if you're in a grab or something or like you're just taking a car, it is easier to take voice notes. And then if you're walking around and there's not too many people around, it's a bit easier to use your voice as well. So I was curious. Like train for sure. Definitely not doing it. i also out a consideration to everyone else, right? Because you don't want to ruin their day either. So, okay. It's interesting. There's also the rewind pendant. I think that's one of the ones you were talking about. Yeah. That's yeah. the other one. Yep. Yeah. which uh, a lot of backlash for having a device that records you 24-7 because you can basically rewind conversations you had during the day, things like that. But I think also people will underestimate how much we're already being like recorded and monitored with our devices anyway. So
1: Yeah, know. like it's not a problem until it is. Mm. Right. I, I think people need to try and nail a way to do this without uploading it to the cloud.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and I think that's where personalized hardware starts making a lot of sense.
0: Okay, so we've covered three things now. Costs, 3D printed cakes and foods and, and and drinks, and then the Rabbit AI device, which I think is interesting. Something that just came out. How about we go into to what you wanted to talk about? Sure. I, I don't know where to start with this.
1: So there is this concept in Honduras called the ZEDE. Wait, let me get my notes out so I don't absolutely butcher this. That's right, I have notes. I came prepared. The Zonas de Employee y... Desarrollo Económico, right? So the special zone for employment and economics. Yeah. They're these special economic zones and they have like super unique legal and administrative setups. They're like charter cities, so like Singapore, Hong Kong, but on steroids. And so there's this one called Prospera, which is one of the better known ZEDs in Honduras. And it's sort of the semi-autonomous region. It's got super business-friendly regulations. It's run by a private company. Right. So it's basically a private, it is talked about as a private city and it's funded by Peter Thiel and some other guy, I can't remember. Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen, right? Through a company called Pronomos Capital. And basically they set up the city and they get to decide what the law is essentially as a private company. And specifically there is this company called Mini Circle that has set itself up in Prospera to... I'm going to give the uncharitable way of framing this (laughs) to basically run wildly unregulated clinical trials for gene therapy. So they had like this web three based ad where you could like purchase an NFT to be a part of like their phase one clinical trial. And so because of the sort of like special regulation zone that they're incorporated in and look at this, it just looks like a freaking boutique hotel in, in the middle of the Caribbean. But It gives them the freedom to do something that I think a lot of libertarian-esque people really appreciate. I'm definitely one of them, which is to say we want to do gene therapy to advance longevity, which is an incredibly tough thing to do because in a standard regulated environment like the U.S., what's your clinical endpoint? So what that means is what's the disease that you're telling the FDA you're treating with this drug? If you don't have one, like what are you running a clinical trial for? That's their view on it. And unfortunately, living longer and being youthful for longer isn't like a thing that you can pitch to the FDA. And even if it was, it's a very, very difficult thing to have a a group of endpoints for what it means to be young that clinicians agree upon. So they've said, fuck it. This is what we think the biomarkers are. This is the gene therapy that we believe works. Here's all the preclinical data that we've produced. So, you know, the animal studies, the cell studies, and then if, if you're game, buy a spot in our clinical trial, we'll treat you with this. I think it costs something like 30,000 US dollars, which depending on who you are, is not a significant amount of money. And they've already administered this to several hundred people. And basically what it is, is it's a gene therapy that expresses something called folostatin. And so folostatin regulates like muscle and bone and fat balance. And essentially it, it keeps you youthful through a very a variety of, of biomarkers, but injections only last a couple hours. And so what they've done is they've created what's called a mini-circle DNA, which is a strand of DNA that loops back on itself. It's very small. It's super compressed. They inject this straight into your cells and it sits around and it lives for ages because it's very stable. And your usual bodily mechanisms kick in and they transcribe the DNA and they turn it into folostatin. And this lasts about 1.5 years. So you get about, yeah, one and a half years of like increased folostatin levels, which helps keep you young generally you get like a 40% increase in your like lifespan in small mammals. They haven't done long-term studies in humans for obvious reasons. It takes a hundred years to detect whether you've been successful. But I guess one of the key innovations is that it's reversible. So they've designed this mini circle DNA to be super selective for a certain secondary drug. So if you get any kind of weird side effects, you take the secondary drug and it kills all the mini circle DNAs inside your body. And I just love, I just love the setup here. So like, Forgetting mini circle for the moment, Mm. any longevity play or sort of like alternative biotech therapeutic play that doesn't fit well within the existing FDA infrastructure and ecosystem, fuck it. Just set up one of these special economic zones, essentially buy your own city in the Caribbean, and then do (laughs) do whatever you want. The fact that this is done in reverse, that people are paying to be a part of the clinical trial, means that they've tapped into something quite fundamental Mm. that humans really, really want but aren't able to get access to elsewhere. So- I think it's pretty freaking cool. And, and clinical trials are not very big, mm. right? Typically, your first clinical trial is like 10 people. And then it goes to like 30. So at this stage, to have already done like admitted to this in hundreds of people is pretty solid. Like, And, and if people are willing to take the bet and critically, they have access to the research, why not let them?
0: Mm. That's, that's so fascinating. Are you planning on doing it? I
1: want to. Okay. But I haven't personally had the time to dig into the research. So I have met a couple of people who have done this. Mm-hmm. And I know that at least one of them has gone through an extensive review process of this. But this feels like one of the ones that you don't want to rely on the research that someone else has done. You kind of want to dig into it yourself.
0: What about like anecdotal data? Like how have they felt after taking it? Like anything just anecdotally?
1: Funnily enough, I've not heard anything from that. Other than the fact that they're still alive and they don't have any bad health effects I mean again this is one of the tough things about like medicine that's designed to keep you young it's like yeah. do you still feel like yourself yeah, yeah, yeah the key is do you feel like yourself do you still feel like you're in your 40s when you're in your 60s and that's a much longer term kind of question
0: mm-hmm. yeah do they have to keep taking it every one and a half years
1: pretty much so that, that's kind of the idea is that maybe once every two years you'd go in for a top up yeah, yeah. mix that with like a, a blood boy that you can just hook up to yourself once a year do a a youthful blood transfusion. Yeah, we're living to like two hundred.
0: The the plasma donors, right? The young plasma donors. I don't know
1: if it's just plasma. I think it's like a whole blood transfusion. Oh, right. Anyway, my sister just had a, a kid. He's my little nephew, and I refer to him as my blood boy. Yeah. I don't know what blood type
0: he or I am, yeah. but <laughs>
1: <laughs> Oh
0: we'll find um, out. Yeah, this is really cool. Actually recently, uh have you seen Brian Johnson's um BP five thousand, which yeah. is getting five thousand people? Yep. Are you going to do that? I'm not in the BP 5000. Okay. Um, but for sure, I, okay. I'm going to be on that. So I got selected for BP 5000. Really? Yesterday. Fuck you. And I haven't met him yet. Whereas <laughs> you have. So I don't know what's going on there. I think I'm probably different enough, diverse enough that, you know, maybe I'll be an interesting data point. That's the way I pitch myself, anyway. The only issue is I've got to weigh myself on the. Scale that does body composition mm-hmm. for seven days straight. And I'm yep. currently in Singapore and I'm going to fly to Sri Lanka and don't have the capability to do that. And the other requirement is I need to measure my whoop seven days, which I already am doing. And then on the 2nd of Feb, I think that's when the protocol starts. So I think it's seven days of like prepping, benchmarking yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, but I am super curious to see the 90 days and maybe, yeah, be a good 90 day period. I did do. it for six months and felt amazing. So, oh, really? Yeah. The, the exact protocol?
1: Yep. Yep. Everything. Everything you can get in Singapore because not all of it you can get. Yeah, because
0: I knew you were doing the food. I didn't realize you were doing everything. Yeah, everything the food,
1: the sleep, not the light therapy because yeah. I didn't have one of those helmets. But yeah. Was... Why did you stop? It was impractical. So I had a buddy who I read this tweet and it was this breakdown of this guy thinking about his life and he was in his 40s and he's like, I've, and he basically figured out from the numbers that 99% of the time he was going to spend with his best friend, he'd already spent just because you get such a high density of time with them in high school. So I sent this tweet to my my best friend, and I was like, do you want to come live with me for six months? And he's like, fuck yeah, quit his job, came and lived with me. We traveled the world, and we lived in the U.S. We went to Europe. It was fantastic. And the deal was, you come live with me. Like, I'll pay for everything, but the one thing you have to do for me is implement the blueprint protocol every day, 24-7. And he did. So he'd, like, make the food. He'd buy the pills. He'd prep everything. So he was, like, my blueprint PA, basically. Mm. And then that made it super, super easy. Which is why things like the BP5000 and what it's going to become long-term, I think, are super important because it makes the protocol something that's easier than eating bad. And I think that's the key. So it's like when you're super busy and someone just comes along and they just put a meal in front of you and say, it's time to eat this, you just do. And it just completely removes all the choice, and that makes it so so much easier.
0: Yeah. Do you know how he's going to run the BP5000? Because I have no idea. No clue. Okay. No clue. Because from what I understand, you just have to take – the supplements that's it and you can eat your regular diet essentially I doubt that I think I think it was like to get adherence a little bit higher or like something like that
1: there's like h- half of your calories are going to come from it depends what you call a supplement I think
0: it's like three to four hundred calories from that yeah correct and then yeah. the rest you do whatever you want I think
1: there's two meals each of three to four hundred and then okay. yeah the rest you can kind of do what you want mostly because and, and long term food studies show that most of the health like the negative health outcomes from, from food are that you aren't getting the things that you need. Mm. Not that you are getting things that are bad for you. Obviously, getting things that are bad for you is bad for you. But the the outsized impact is it's replacing food that has your fundamental nutrients that your body needs. And that's actually more dangerous, is losing access to those fundamental nutrients, than getting other crap. So the thinking is that if that first 800 calories, you're getting everything your body needs. It doesn't really matter what you do with the rest of the calories, as long as you're not overeating. Mm. And you're not eating, obviously, garbage stuff like, high sugar diet and all this kind of thing like those basics if you if it's not sugary and it's not processed it doesn't really matter what it is okay yeah well not a doctor <laughs> well I'll keep you and the listeners <laughs> posted over the next 90 days i'm so keen to see how you, I, I'm, I'm also kind of jealous that you got selected for the bp5000
0: yeah i was surprised <laughs> you didn't i don't feel like you're gonna just did you did you apply i did yeah oh i think the issue is that i, I already did. do it so <laughs> You're no good data point, whereas I think there'll be a bigger transformation. There'll be a better like story before and after. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for one more thing, which is a patent that I saw on Patent Drop, which is a great newsletter. You guys should follow that. That's the only plug or make. So Microsoft put in a patent for sequence-based authentication using rhythm and or poses. So what that means is basically um i can interpretive dance to unlock my house like pretty pretty much that's exactly what it is so you can do clicks taps like double handed poses single handed poses full body poses Dude, i feel like this
1: is going to be worse than passwords
0: yeah i don't know i think it's also to do with the like i'm guessing it wouldn't be on how you do it how would you differentiate between how someone taps so i think it is just the the taps essentially and things like that see here's the issue right like you could just do biometric encryption but they've decided to go this angle. And I think it's because, and there's some quotes here, basically they want to do it for accessibility purposes. So people that can't type in a password, I think that will be one use case. And that it's not as intensive as biometric. So they wanted a more lightweight solution for accessibility purposes rather than just like enforcing bioencryption on everyone, essentially. I mean, I'm a huge fan
1: of choice. So like, give me the choice to do whatever kind of authentication system I want. If I choose bio-encryption, that's on me.
0: But, like, so one of the quotes from one of the team members is, I think the primary focus of the patent is individuals who necessarily can't use a keyboard or remember a PIN or a password. But you just have to remember the sequence of the pose, right? Like,
1: there are, you know, people with dyscalculia, dyslexia that are, you know, maybe more prone to be able to remember certain things. right? Like, like a, a rhythm is, like, engaging a fundamentally different part of your brain than like a series of numbers. I can totally get it from an accessibility perspective. Um, yeah, But if I open my Windows laptop and it asks me to tap a password, I'm going to look for the other options button.
0: Yeah. So the system may require users to speak, clap, or tap a series of rhythmic sounds. I can get that like kids and yeah. stuff. So I'm, I'm guessing it is figuring out, because if it's asking them to do that, it might be making a, a note on how they sing or speak. Certainly you could do by accent, right? Yeah.
1: As yeah. well. If, if there's vocals to it. Yeah.
0: I, I think it's a fairly generic pattern though. Like they Do you they're, think they're actually going to do this or do you think it's
1: just like a preemptive one?
0: It's probably preemptive. Like a lot of the patterns. I just saw this out of like the... Like every week they maybe send like a couple, like maybe six or eight. Mm-hmm. And this one was just like interesting to me. So I put it in the list to talk about. Yeah. And and the title was Microsoft passes on Passwords. <laughs> which I thought was a catchy title, so it got me. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Other than just that Microsoft
1: pulled an absolutely 180 from being like an ancient company that no one thought of as cool. And in the last, I think it's been the last five years, but really in the last one year, they have just pulled it out of the hat and have become like an innovative company again. Like certainly when you think about Microsoft, it does, I mean, other than obviously being part of, fang or like mango or whatever they call it now like microsoft is now talked about in on on the same league as those but it's i would say in, in many people's minds in the tech industry like microsoft and google are kind of at that same level and i think they cemented that a lot of their moves over the last year around gpt but you know it's something that's been in the works as a cultural shift in that company for for years and years and years i think one of the first things that really started it was the linux subspace in windows and then they big move in general towards open source. VS Code was a huge shift. Like everyone uses VS Code now they now they own GitHub. But this just made all these moves into slowly being like cool in the eyes of techies and developers, where for a long time that just was not the case. Windows was like where developers go to not be taken seriously.
0: That's so interesting. Very true. I think I was using Windows when I first started coding. VS Studio was not a thing. VS
1: Studio has been a thing forever, but VS Code, was there a super lightweight open source kind of version
0: well it wasn't popular at the time i think like the go-to for every coding boot camp this is i'm talking like 10 years ago was like sublime or something like. That. yeah and then it was yeah. atom by yeah. github yeah yeah and, yeah. yeah now yeah.
1: it's vs code and vs code has kind of stuck around for a lot longer yeah super cool all
0: right guys we'll catch you in the next one